You are listening to the Mary Jane Society podcast, where you will meet entrepreneurs, cultivators, scientists, doctors, and inventors in the cannabis industry. I'm your host, Pam Schmiel, marketer and publicist in the cannabis industry. Is there a future for strain-based drinks? Flour is the number one selling category in the country, and legacy growers, connoisseurs, and enthusiasts are obsessed with the nuances of the plant and how it makes you feel. Of course, there are significant challenges to maintaining consistency, quality, and scalability when manufacturing these beverages. Our guest today is Randy Reed. He recently exited successfully from an infused beverage company and is now the VP of Scientific Solutions at AVD. He is an award-winning commercial cannabis scientist with over 20 first-place finishes across multiple product categories. He's created novel products like CO2 Live Resin, and Terp Tonics, the world's first cultivar-specific beverage at the time. This episode is jam-packed with information. Let's welcome Randy. That the strain-based um, beverages and edibles are the future, and really, every you, if you go to any of these like grower pop-ups or you know meeting people who really connoisseurs in the industry they're so obsessed with strains and the effects and how it works in their personal body and yeah. you know their taste preferences and and they, they they're just so knowledgeable of the mm -hmm. nuances right i mean and yeah. this, there's so many people like that and i feel like it's got to spill over into the cpg market in yeah it's the future yeah i mean it's there's going to be a lot of pie out there to to grab i think that's going to be one portion of it for sure you just to your point you know that the legacy people the connoisseurs the um the enthusiasts you know they all they appreciate the strain part of it right it's not just about getting as high as you can it's kind of it's not like you can just drink moonshine and have if people don't just drink moonshine, they drink whiskey, right? They they want a little bit more to the experience and they appreciate that. And there's value built from that. Um, so that's something that, yeah, we were, I mean, we were really, we're, we're exactly where you are thinking in thought process, you know, um, it's kind of the evolution of cannabis beverage in my mind as an extractor manufacturer. Um, so yeah, we, we did, we were doing that for years um, and it's, I still continue to do it. And it's a passion of mine mm. and I, I'm seeing more and more of it out there, um, but it's not without its challenges, obviously, but um, yeah, it, it can go really bad or it can go really good. And it's not for everybody too, right? Like not everybody can appreciate the flavor and the nuance and it just tastes like weed to them, you know? <laughs> right, right, um, right. Well, also actually, if, if, if even if you mask the taste, I wonder mm -hmm. if and and you you maintain the terpenes that seem to affect you in that particular strain. I mean, yeah. without tasting it, you might still get that same effect. I don't know if that really is true. You know what I mean? Like, do you have to have that flavor? I I, I would like it if that would be yeah. fine with me. But mm -hmm. as far as getting the effect in your body. Yeah, so um, 
I mean, I was talking to Dr. Ethan Russo about this. He lives out on my side of the country. And, um, you know, back in 20, 2017, when we we're making these beverages and, and bringing them out to market and testing them out at activations and things, um, you know, I was... I was talking to him about it and we're, we're sipping a Terp tonic and I'm like, what do you think? Like, would you get strain specific effects? I think that's what you're asking. Yes. Um, you know, and, and I can assure you that. Um, so at the time I was doing research into chemobar preservation. So we would take our flower and run chemometrics on it in terms of um, chemical analysis on at the time it was cannabinoids and terpenes. And we had a really nice panel, a good assay. And we were able to demonstrate in our extract, and that's kind of what the patent was based off of, was this work in chemometric analysis and chemo chemovar preservation. So going from the flower basically to the extract, we're able to maintain not only the, the, the ingredients, the components from a molecular level, chemical level, compound level um, of the flower, but we we're also able to maintain the proportions, which is really important. So you could basically go over, overlay the chromatograms, and that what that's what our patent was based on was this this work in chemovar characterization and then preservation because you have to be able to kind of provide the data and validate that what your invention or whatnot if you say it does something you you have to demonstrate that. So this was one mode of demonstrating the ability to preserve the native chemovar. Um, so this was like early day live resin extraction basically, and we were doing it via CO two. So anyways, I, I say that um, as a prelude to, okay, you have to do that first to be able to ensure that you're getting it into the beverage, right? So let's make that assumption. And we validated that we have extracted all of the native constituents, and then now they're in the beverage. Now, at that point, what happens? There's the pharmacokinetics of it, the, the pharmacodynamics of it. Talking to Dr. Russo about it and other chemists about it, biochemists, um, at the time, we were thinking that the terpenes are such simple structures, they don't make it, the gut environment is extremely acidic, acidic, right? It's very caustic. The terpenes at the time we we're thinking really don't get into the system. Um, they just can't withstand that, that gut environment. Um, but that said, we, we were nanoemulsifying them. We were using um, gaseous fractions of them from our CO2 extractor. So we had different ways of getting them into the beverage. Um, you know, everything short of a, a PK study would really, you know, this is all just theory at the time. Um, but what would happen is there's some activations we would we would show up with our kegerator of terp tonic and we it was uh, we couldn't serve the cannabinoid portions of it. So we just serve uninfused terp tonic. It's just terpene infused water. But we're talking native cannabis derived terpenes. And people would get high. They would get effects. Um, yeah. And I, I had a... Uh, wow. Uh, that's a lot of yeah, terpenes or potent. It is a lot of terpenes. They're potent compounds. So that that's when we really started thinking differently about it, you know, and not just based on theory. Um, and, and we're starting to see more anecdote and, you know, empirical data that, hey, the, there's efficacy here. Like these we we've tested these th these liquids these solutions in the lab we know there's no cannabinoids in them we know there's a lot of terpenes in them and people are reporting effects and mm -hmm. one of the lab technicians that i work with she was at an activation she's a chemist she was like you're positive there's nothing in that randy because i was 
I felt high. And I would notice people's eyes would get watery and red. Um, and there's and they're not smoke. And she was like, I wasn't smoking and I wasn't drinking. All I had was your Tertonics. And she made me send her um, a sample of what we served her. And she ran it through through GC and HPLC um, for can was was HPLC for cannabinoids and nothing. And she was like, whoa. So that was really kind of a moment when we started thinking like, okay, there's more to it than just what we think. And there is efficacy on ingesting. Right? I mean, we, and now, um, you know, wow, fast forward. Interesting. Wow. So yeah. Interesting. And now fast forward. And we haven't done PK studies. You know, that would really tell us um, if the terpenes are getting into the system, if they're being metabolized and, um, you know, getting into the, into the blood, especially. Um, but, um, I mean, we've done PK studies with cannabinoids. Um, I've got some EEG studies that we're working on now that would give um, just more, more objective data, I would say. Um, so that would be kind of interesting as far as efficacy goes. But anyways, fast, fast forward like eight years now, um, and we're serving terpene slushies at the California State Fair, and we're serving literally 10,000 of them. Um, and these don't have any cannabinoids in them. Um, they're just terpenes. And again, people are feeling the effects. So I do think that there is efficacy when you're ingesting terpenes, but it's it's uh, there's so much to it. You know, you have to ensure that the terpenes are getting in there, that they're stable, um, and and that they can kind of withstand the, the gut environment. But they seem to they seem to get into the bloodstream and, and provide efficacy. Do you, experience. do you know is that is is that true just with cannabis derived terpenes, or have you tested with botanical terpenes? Um, so a terpene's a terpene, no matter if it comes from cannabis or not. Um, the cannabis plant produces a, a vast array of them, and it's it's this, yeah, the the, the entourage of it or the the synergistic effects. Um, but that said, the this level of sophistication um, now in botanical terpene formulation and hemp derived terpene formulation, for that matter, is it's really progressed. Um, there's a paper that just came out from some colleagues of mine at Abstracts that they did over at Western Washington, where they um, found um, demonstrative efficacy in AD, not ADHD, it was um, autism. Um, it just came out and um, they're using botanically derived terpenes. And those were one of the, the primary drivers um, along with the CBD formulation that they were testing. So yeah, absolutely. You know, terpene's a terpene. And and like I said, there's the sophistication now in the ability to char fully characterize um, the chemical profile of the cannabis plant and then rebuild it using, you know, um, other botanically derived terpenes has come a long way. Because, because many, um, most people or many, many manufacturers or brands are using uh, botanical terpenes mm -hmm. to enhance their products and you know some will say well it's not having the same effect or that's the problem because you know especially in the medical community they're they're, they're relying on these terpenes for their you know yeah their absolutely relief and and some are saying you know that that we can't do it in extraction or manufacturing so it's so interesting to hear you say that botanical or doesn't matter. It's probably the combination of the different terpenes and the. It is. It is, and there's. It's 
it's just like anything else. It's there's so much into how you make it, um, how you manufacture it, the consistency of it, um, the reliability of your supply chain. I mean, there's so much nuance to it to make a quality botanical product. But but companies like True Terpenes and Abstracts, and if you want to go um, to like hemp derived, more kind of native quote-unquote natural full-spectrum terpene formulations, um, terpene belt farms. Those are solid companies. Ebna was another great company that we worked with. Mm. Um, so, yeah, and I've I've been, uh, I'm, I'm speaking with Dr. Shana from True Terpenes at um, Emerald Science Conference on this. Um, we're also doing, we have a white paper study coming out um, with uh, abstracts and um, uh, Ian Oswald, who's their, their one of their PhDs at Abstracts on the R&D side. So I work very closely with these terpene companies. Um, terpene Belt Farms is another collaborator there who we used um, in our um, terpene slushies at the at the state fair. So I'm very close with them. I've, I've seen kind of behind the scenes with them. Um, and and I can tell you that they're doing excellent things. And, you know, I was I was anti botanical too um it didn't make sense to me i'm like the plant makes everything you need and you can never replicate it and blah 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 but yeah. um you know after working closely with them and understanding what they're doing and how they do it and the level of detail care um they put into it and then seeing the results um tasting the products and and being there to, ex to experience the evolution really because i've been formulating with botanicals and cannabis derived for over a decade now um it, it's come a long long way and and it's going to continue to progress and there's there's use case and business case for for all of it in my opinion now so i think it depends on really what you're looking for and what kind of product you're trying to put out there and um is it is it you know because everybody is 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 complaining or talking about the loss of terpenes so i mean i know we lose it in the extraction because they're they're so you know so delicate yeah. and they put them back in i guess in the emulsion process is that yeah. how okay yes the terpenes are volatile they are you know they have a different boiling point than the cannabinoids um so they they have a different affinity for the solvent system if you're using solvents so they'll come out at different points or they'll you know if you try to grab them all at once then you can you can kind of co-mingle co with other fractions in there um they can polymerize they can isomerize they can um they can evaporate right there's so you can lose them so it's the extraction side of it there's a there's a whole art and science to that let's just assume that they that the intent is to preserve the native chemovar and that they get a beautiful full spectrum extract that chemically is identical to the flower. Okay, so after that, with that assumption, um, then we get into like formulation science, and that's where the the emulsion comes in. Or you're either going to distill um, if you don't if you don't want to keep that full spectrum profile. Um, you mentioned distill it. You can distill any extract. Um, so you can distill rosin if you want. People are distilling rosin for to distill off the terpenes so that they can put them back in. Um, again, because these these components of the that native spectrum, they are um, they're they're very they're chemically different 
in a lot of ways and they want to come out a different time and you got to kind of treat them differently to really optimize the, the, the downstream kind of formulation process, in my opinion. Um, at least that's the way we used to do it. That's, it, it gives the, the formulator a lot more control, gives you a lot more consistency um, versus if you just go, oh, I'm just going to do whatever the extract wants to do. That was kind of the old school technique, like, oh, if it's going to sugar, it's going to go into sugar. Or if it's going to shatter, it's going to be shatter. I'm going to try to make it shatter, but if it doesn't, I'm just going to let it go and then call it something else, right? Or we'll whip it and turn it into batter, and then we've got batter. So, like, that was kind of the old school technique. Now you have the ability to fraction off all these different parts of it, separate it off, and then formulate back and do whatever you want to do downstream in the process to get whatever end product you want. So you have a lot more control that way. And then with that, all the different fractions, you can do blends. And with the blends, you have consistency. It's how Jack Daniels does it, right? Like every batch of Jack Daniels, it has a uniqueness to it. Um, so they, you know, they have all these different vintages and blends and heads, tails, all these different cuts and fractions. And then there's a master blender that goes in and blends to a specific sensory profile, right? And a specific proof. And they'll add water to dilute. They'll add ethanol to get the proof back up, right? Or they'll reproof it in the barrels. There's all sorts of techniques to get that consistency that we know and love as Jack Daniels. But they don't they don't just brew a mash and go, hey, let's whatever it turns out is going to yeah. be. That you know, and hopefully our process is the same and our crop is the same every year. That it just it's not scalable. Um, well, that that's one of the other problems too is the consistency. I don't want to yeah. take it. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot to it, and I'm I'm kind of going going around it. Um, once you know, it, on the formulation side, there's a number of techniques to get terpenes into the products, and more and more people are doing this. Um, now it's it's I would say it's TBD as far as efficacy goes. The at least um, having like a demonstrative demonstrative body of science saying like, hey, if we put myrcene in something and you ingest it, here's the PK. There's the myrcene getting into the blood. Here's the EEG. Here's the effects. Here's the here's the 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 proof basically, you know, quantitative proof that. Um, the effects are as intended by the formulator. I, that to me has yet to be demonstrated. There's a couple of um, smaller white papers where they were doing some just basic matrix studies to where, you know, they would give you a gummy with a lot of CBN and they give you one with a lot of THC. And then you can go like, oh, I feel excited. I feel here. And then based on that, you know, it's kind of, they'll scatter plot out the effects. Um, and you could you could see that there was some shift in efficacy based on the formulation, which is great, you know. Um, but is that enough to to back up claims if you're trying to explain it to the FDA? It's not, um, and that's really that's to me that's the level of of rigor that you're going to need to meet eventually if you make claims. Um, <laughs> as far as like if I put myrcene in and it's a sativa, or sorry, if I put myrcene in and it's a indica. Or, or hybrid or whatever it is you want to call it effect um you know number one there's no industry standard to what that is it's uh just grossly misused those terms but we all know what we're using them for we're talking about sleepiness we're talking about in the couch you know um we're talking about relaxation so we've come to accept that as an industry which is fine um side note 
um, standardizing terminology and nomenclature is going to is coming, and that is going to be just a big kind of benchmark for the industry, um, because then when when we do get regulated at a federal level, whether it be FDA, TTB, whoever it is that comes in, they're going to look at industry standards um, to uh, to 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 weigh claims against basically. So if you're making claims such as, oh, this is a sativa because I put limonene in it, or I put or I put terpenoline in it, then um, you're going to have to have basically the data to support that, right? And there's right. Right. there's a number of ways to do that. That you know, proving efficacy is nothing new. Um, so there's a number of ways to do that. I mentioned some of them, right? Like EEG and PK. Um, so um, but you're going to have to have that if you're going to make those claims. Um, but I do think that it, there's, there's value there that not only from a flavor sensory perspective, but also efficacy. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> long, yeah. long winded answer. It's happening. Yeah. It's coming. Um, formulation matters, extraction matters. Um, there's, there's a lot of links to the value chain to, to really create the, the sort of product that you set out to and promise to deliver on. And then there's the whole sales marketing distribution side, which is a whole nother piece of the pie, which is uh, which is a challenge. Right. I'm glad the FDA is making it hard or illegal to make those kind of claims now. I mean, people are doing it, yeah. but it, it is illegal. You're, and you know, in the marketing world and state marketing laws, but yeah. um, but I, I well, I'm not sure if this is question. The next question is tied mm -hmm. together, but the, your patent uh, mm -hmm. that you're talking about at the start. Uh, yeah. is based on is it based CO2. on it's called it's a terpene extraction um chemovar preservation um it's the the supportive data that we provided was chemometric analysis um so that is you know basically terpene and cannabinoid analysis so we use hplc and gc it's kind of the gold standard for for that sort of characterization for cannabis um and yeah, that was the basis of um, the technology as far as proving that it could do what we said it could do. Okay, so it's it's based on your extraction method. Yeah. Oh, okay, so that's what yeah. I was okay. That's what I was wrapping into. So I, I think I just read that you've created a CO two live resin. Yeah. Method, and that's what this all ties into. Yeah, yeah, okay. it was. We we called it CO two live resin. That's that's what it was. It, it is a live resin. It's extracted from fresh frozen plant material, um, THCA rich. If you want to go down that route, full of monoterpenes. If you want to go down the rabbit hole a little deeper on live resin, um, and by the way, live resin is again like to go back to industry standards. Um, it, it live resin is a term that's thrown around very loosely. Right, and it needs to be standardized. That way, the consumers know what they're getting. Um, and 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 as a researcher, we're all speaking the same language. If you're saying you're testing live resin, I can I can compare apples to apples. I know that there's a standard for live resin, just like there's a standard for chromium in the lab, right? And um, I can go get a certified reference material. I don't know if it'll get to that for live resin. Having a, a certified reference live resin that all researchers must use if they're using live resin. Um, to calibrate against, but um, it, it, at least we can start to standardize terminology. Um, so, anyways, to go back to live resin, um, yeah, it was a it was a patent. It, it is a patent pending. 
um, and you have to go, you have to do a prior art search. It was corporate funded, right? Like out, um, Lehoa Brands funded the, the patent. Basically, when we got acquired the first time, the acquiring company sent in a team of patent attorneys and they looked at everything we we're doing and they're going, okay, that one is already in the art. It's already patented or this one's already out in, you know, in, in the public domain. Um, but when they, they really honed in on what we're doing with CO2 and live resin extraction, and they said, this is novel. We haven't seen anything like this. Um, let's go, let's do a little bit of research, see if there's any prior art out there. We did that. And um, they were like, let's, let's go for this. So we wrote up, you know, a 45 page patent application, um, dealt with the patent office, the USPTO. And um, yeah, they got, we got patent pending, um, which, basically kind of locks our place in line so that um, if anybody applies after, you know, with similar technology, then um, they they typically wouldn't get granted the patent pending process. And it takes about three to four years to get through the patent pending process. Um, so yeah, it's coming up. We should be getting that patent. I don't, I don't own the patent that's corporate owned. Um, I'm the inventor of it sign my rights away on it oh. <laughs> but there's plenty more plenty more <laughs> ip going on oh, in fact live and learn now, yeah yeah no it's cool you know like i the it wasn't i, I didn't own the lab i mean it's, it's millions of dollars oh. in lab equipment and things that we developed this ip on um but anyways like just now it's it's really interesting that was a that was a big achievement for me like professionally um, to get this patent pending status and, and invent something novel, right? Like that was really cool um, and, and fulfilling um, and to have my name on a patent, right? Like that was cool. But now I'm a part of ABD and like we're a technology company, really cannabis technology company. We specialize in, in vapor devices. Um, in fact, we're the largest domestically founded and run vapor device company um, in the world. So um, we move millions and millions of these uh, 510 cartridges and all-in-one disposable devices and batteries. So anyways, I bring this up now because I'm a part of our patent and IP team, and we do three to five patents every other week now. <laughs> what? Yeah. So we're filing. You you're like submitting? Crazy. You're submitting? Yes. Submitting? submitting and filing. Submitting and filing. Every you know, other because week. Because this is the time. This is the time. It is. It this is. is so we have a we just have a library. I forget we filed like fifty something patents last year. I forget it, it was a lot. Um, and how many do you expect to to and then I want to ask you about that CO two mm -hmm. patent. And how yeah. many do you expect to pass like out of that? Like it depends, is, right? It's like you just get your you get your place in line basically, and then you kind of it's parked there, and you wait if there's opposition from the from the the reviewing attorney or the, the whatever, I forget they're called, the trademark patent patent office people. Um, and then um, we kind of just leave it in our attorney's hands. And if we'll pull things, if it's like, ah, it's not worth it to go on that one. Because the patent's really as good as um, if you, there's, I think there's like two, two or three ways of monetizing a patent. Number one is you license it out. Um, number two is you use it for yourself. Um, and then number three is you go after damages. So like a little joke for us was like, we kind of, you kind of want, if you're not doing anything with the patent and somebody else does something with it, you kind of want to oh. let them go with it, make a ton of money off of it and, then and, then get it. In and go, Hey, 
you didn't do your your diligence when you were doing this and now you owe us damages like that's, that's kind of the play if you're not using it yourself or licensing it out so those are kind of the three ways to really hold value out of a patent um so that's know, interesting that we'll see what what we want to do with avd we i can say that we want a massive um court case um in the international trade court um where c-cell was um suing us i don't know how familiar you are with the vape space but c-cell they're a large Chinese um, run. Mm -hmm. I think they're the fifth largest tobacco company in the world. They're big tobacco, Chinese run. Um, and they they crushed the cannabis industry with their ceramic cores. They were um, one of the first to come in with the ceramic cores and it completely changed the 510 vape game for cannabis. Um, we were early on as well. And, um, you know, we are our trajectory was was quite good as well um we got to a point to where we became a, a big threat to them um and they they sued us and they sued every other um cartridge manufacturer in the industry that used the ceramic core mm. and they claimed patent infringement um this would have completely given this you know chinese owned company foreign company uh, a monopoly on the technology that is now the the standard for cannabis vaporization no nope. so it would have it's it was a big big deal it would have you know existential threat to our business to the industry um and we shouldered it to the tune of multiple millions of dollars and we won um and the the itc found that there was no um patent or trade infringement i guess and um we were able to that's when they brought me on because the company was like we're going to really invest in r d now and really dev dev out basically so they brought me on right after that big win wow. um, it could have gone either way and it was it was we we, we pretty much picked the, the industry on our shoulders and um we won that one for for the u.s cannabis industry so that was that's a big deal. Amazing. That's amazing. I hadn't I hadn't heard about that. Um, yeah. yeah, I I know, and that's a whole. No, I know. Would love to get into that whole vape thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I know it's like all these different avenues. Yeah, and we got a lot going on. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> you know I know. It's a cannabis industry. <laughs> I know exactly. We're all yeah. there's so much going on. But with your yeah. two live resin patent mm -hmm. is that correct the it would yeah, it be patent pending patent pending yeah is that yeah. is that machine based or is it is it the is it the, it's would somebody yeah, it's, buy a machine or uh they wanted to use it yeah it's it's process it's a combination of process and machine okay yeah you you do okay. need the machines to do it you don't okay. need our machine um we don't we didn't make the machines we we had you know, I had, I had partners and collaborators on the um, OEM side, manufacturing side. Um, but yeah, that that was never really the the intent. The intent was really to protect our IP and use it in house, um, which is what we did, and that's how we crushed the award scenes and um, did really well there because oh. nobody else was using the technology. It was very novel. And if they did, then, you know, we had every right to go after them. And we had 
you know, a team of attorneys that was scouring the landscape, extraction, manufacturing landscape. Um, so if anything popped up, you know, we we keep eyes on them and then they would get served if they if they use our, our technology. Right. I've, um, I've seen that you have a ton of awards based on these, yeah, strain-based bridges yeah. and, and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, typically for, uh, I guess, a live resin, is it is it B, is butane and BHO the same thing? That is that the typical uh, yep. extraction method? And then you mm-hmm. are coming in and saying no, CO two is better because that's solventless, right? But instead of doing like hash rosin, so what, I guess I'm asking yeah. the difference. What what how what 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 is the difference and what makes it better? And I mean, you won tons of awards. Yeah. So it's obviously a, a, an effect. Mm-hmm. That, that, yeah, that. yeah, I'm totally. Um, I mean, it's. Okay, so let's see. Um, to go to the first part of that question, butane, BHO, we hide their hydrocarbon solvents. You can use propane. You can use R143A. There's those are fluorohydrocarbons. There's a number of hydrocarbons um, that you can use. Most people use butane and propane, and and or some mix of that, um, and that gives you BHO, um, butane hash oil, um, and CO2 is a solvent, technically, um, in the way that we use it. And, um, you know, uh, I wouldn't say it's better. I mean, back in the day, you know, I used to do cage matches and debate this with other extractors. And they would put us on stage and we would scream at each other about who had the best extraction and blah, blah, blah. You know, <laughs> um, right. it's really what what your end goal is, because there's there's so much nuance to it. If you want to make dabs nowadays, you're either doing solventless or VHO. If you mm-hmm. want to make distillate, you're going to use ethanol or you're going to use even um, superheated steam. Now. Um, and those are kind of the those have what has come out of all of the um, extraction technologies from the past. CO2 is not, I'm just not seeing it as much these days. Um, There's some really big CO2 rigs out there for hemp um, that still, I think, have um, a place in the industry. Um, And I'm a big believer in CO2. It's just that it's a tool just like anything else and it can be a little bit more complicated than running these other systems in my opinion so you need a, just a little bit more technical ability or aptitude to really get the most out of it and most people just haven't gone that far as we have um, unfortunately because the technology is really powerful in my opinion and it, it absolutely has um, value for for our industry it's just that I don't think it's the, the economics of it, it it's really expensive. Um, the, the barrier to entry to get into CO2 versus BHO versus ethanol, it's probably two to three times as much. And you need to do more to it to get um, a good product uh, out of it, a comparable product out of it. But if you if you really know what you're doing with it, you can get a better product, you know, like that's right. what we've demonstrated in our chemo metrics. Like, Hey, it's, it's identical. And then when people try it, they're like, Holy smokes, you know, here's a, here's a trophy. Like that's, right. that's how we're able to do so well with it. But like I said, it just takes, it takes a lot of aptitude to be able to get it there. And most people don't have that. And then also like, you know, we were the only people doing it that way, right? Like we, we did the prior art search. It was a novel technology technique. So um, it just hasn't had the the 
the ability to get out there and get get people to try it and, and buy into it. So there's there's a number of factors. Um but I so that that's kind of the lay of the land. Um solvent extraction is gonna be ethanol, butane, um, hydrocarbons, um, CO2 is a solvent. Um, and then solvent less is gonna be ice water hash, dry sieve, um, those sorts of things. Um, and that's that's extraction. Um and then distillation. So just going, taking that that raw extract or live resin extract, refined extract, but it's an extract. It's you know the, the native um, constituents that have been extracted out of the plant, and then distilling off just whatever whatever compounds you're interested in. So you would distill off um, all the terpenes first, then you'd you'd concentrate down the cannabinoids, and then you'd distill off the cannabinoids and capture your pure THC, and that's. Mm that's how that works. So distillation is a separation refinement technique. It's not extraction. It comes after extraction. And that's, that's how distillate is made. What would you say the bottom line is for terpenes being uh, shelf stable or, you know, mm -hmm. in beverages, like as far as, you know, talking about the strain based or not even strain, yeah. but just beverages. Yeah. And um, do you think that uh, as far as shelf stable, like a distillate, or like I said, I've seen a hash rosin version come out. Um, are yeah. there, is there a specific extraction process that you think would be best to maintain shelf stability, uh, scalability and mm -hmm. a consistency? Yeah. Like um, for, you can turn any extract, it, it, there's, I hate saying this. It depends, you know. <laughs> there, know. There's so much to it. Um, once you really start to understand, it, I wish I just had a clean, simple answer. Um, I guess, you know, there's a reason why people use distillate a lot. It's easy. It's it's a concentrated, purified, singular ingredient versus the sweet and entourage of cannabinoids, terpenes flavonoids, all these other lipids, um, you know, that you get in full spectrum extracts that can be hard to control for and, and hard to keep consistent um, and hard, definitely more challenging to formulate with from a, from a formulation perspective. That's something that really, that's where, where we myself professionally really saw an opportunity. And that's where I spent all of my time was being able to formulate with full spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, you know, native beverages with, with native being from the plant um, and not not distillate or isolate. Um, to me, that was easy. And again, just being a lover of the plant, I was like, there's so much more to it. Once you try a full spectrum product, like a true full spectrum product, um, it it's a totally different thing. Yes. And it to me, it's like, I just got, I have so much respect for the plant. And I was like, that's, I just never got it, but now that I've been through it several cycles, I get it now. You know, it's a lot yeah. more commercially viable and easy to do it that way. And the consumers of beverage, they don't necessarily have the sophistication yet to tease that yeah. out. And yep. you know, I totally get it. Um, but it didn't stop us from pursuing our passion and what we thought was kind of the right way to to produce a commercial product, um, albeit it was a lot more difficult, time consuming and costly, but 
in my opinion, it was worth it. Like we have the experience, the proof is there in what you can do. Um, and it's just a matter of time before it becomes uh, just a larger chunk of the pie, in my opinion. Um, but they're, they're, it's distillate, isolate, those formulations aren't going anywhere. Um, so, and then as far as like shelf stability goes, um, there's a lot to it in beverage making. It can go, it, it can have, have everything to do with dissolved oxygen is a big, big uh, metric that we look at um, for shelf stability, because if you have what's called DO in your beverage, in the beverage world, um, you know, that can lead to microbial activity and microbial activity will follow the beverage. Um, it, you know, it's not good to have things growing in your beverage. <laughs> in alcohol, DO along with sugar can increase the alcohol content and you can have um, carbonation, overcarbonation, bottles explode, you know, there's all sorts of things that can go wrong. If your if your DOs up, your sugars are up, your pH is off. There's a number of metrics that we look at as terms of shelf stability from a traditional beverage standpoint, CPG standpoint, and then on the cannabis side, we look at the the stability of the nano emulsion, and that's a that's a combination of the, the stationary beverage phase, the liquid phase, and the emulsion phase um, that we call mobile phase, um, and you know, the pH needs to be right. Again, the bricks needs to be right. The TDS needs to be right. Um, the DO needs to be right. Carbonation needs to be right. Um, and then you have to have the right um, nanoemulsification process formulation. Um, and in that side, we look at um, particle size analysis is frequently used. Um, we use an instrument called a dynamic laser scattering instrument um, that measures the the droplet sizes of these nano emulsification, nano emulsified cannabinoids. Um, and with that, there's a, to me in the industry, what we were seeing was a like, oh, we're nano now, everybody's nano. You know, what does that mean? Oh, it just means you're really small and smaller is better. And it, it became just like THC number inflation. Like people were so fixated on how small your particle size is and that being the, the end all be all. Um, just like high THC is the end all be all that you're missing the point. It's, it's about the, it's not only about the size, the size is important. You want to be below a certain nanometer to, to have stability, to have the sort of visual and, um, sensory appeal and UX that people are looking for. Um, but it's also the distribution of those droplets. You can't have you know, one small droplet and go, Hey, like we're a nan, we're below that nan nano range and look how small we are. And then you've got all these bigger droplets and medium sized droplets. Um, those, the bigger droplets have more mass and over time they'll, that mass will attract a smaller mass. They'll get together, make bigger droplets. They'll fall out of solution. They'll sink, they'll float, they'll do whatever, depending on the, that, the, the liquid phase that you're in. So it's a really important to have a, a, an even distribution of those droplets. So we, we call it mean particle size distribution. Um, so that's another metric within the nano emulsification formulation science world. That's, that's really important for shelf stability. And, and what about scalability in, oh, okay, well, I'm sorry. Let me just say one, one more thing on the terpenes. This is it, but the terpenes is, I, I heard somebody say, or maybe you had said in something I was reading that terpenes can age and improve with time. Like, oh yeah, yeah. In, 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 a, in, a, in a beverage? 
Yes, absolutely. And this is anecdote still. Um, but that said, I was I do a lot of sensory science, and in sensory science, you know, qualitative, quantitative research, and it's sensory science is science, and the human as an instrument, especially a trained sensory scientist, is a much more powerful instrument than a quantitative chemical analysis instrument like a GC or HPLC. <laughs> so it doesn't give you the full picture like a human can, and especially a trained human. So I, I don't want to discount anecdote in sensory science like a lot of people do. Like, well, yeah, where's the proof? Like, I, I, I talk to other scientists and you go, it, it aged beautifully. And they go, yeah, but what does that mean? You know, have you run it on have you run it on an instrument and shown and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, just try it. You know, if you if you try it and you use, you know, good sensory science techniques and methods, that counts. And that will demonstrate the ability of the, the beverage to age and change over time. And, and when you run things like what's called a triangle test or an exclusion test, um, standard sens sensory science techniques, you will absolutely see that the beverage has aged, changed, and arguably um, you know, gotten better or matured with time. Um, for instance, the, the Maven Terptonic that we did, um, it was, when it was bottled fresh, it was vegetal it was peppery like black pepper um piney um very it had it had this very live resin fresh kind of of sensory profile to it um i just had one this is very timely that we've that we're talking because i just opened up one um over the weekend this past weekend and i was blown away by how much it changed um it got all of those those live resin notes, the, the fresh flower, vegetal notes completely went away. And it, the peach really came out. And that they call it the peach cream gelato for a reason. And I didn't, honestly, I, I didn't get it when it was live. But it, it cured in the bottle and the peach came out. Um, it got sweeter. The pine pepper notes completely went away. Um, and even it even had like a touch of, of like fresh lavender on on the tail of that. Um, but it was it completely changed. And this so was over blossomed. the course of a year and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. It, it tasted delicious. I, I liked it a lot better um, than when it was fresh and live, to be honest. Um, it's, yeah, it was, it, was, it was really good. <laughs> so I, I was excited that, about right? it and, and nice and stable. Um, you know, no separation in the liquid or anything like that after a year and a half. So that's, that's pretty good. That's, that's amazing. That's, that's amazing. Actually. I've yeah. never heard anyone talking about that, you know, terpenes mm -hmm. aging. Yeah. Like, so that's pretty yeah. cool. And, you know, to go back to, to dissolved oxygen, um, the beautiful thing about bottling and liquid um, for formulation of cannabinoids and terpenes, especially, is that you can monitor the oxygen level, and and we we completely purge the liquid. Um, we do when we're bottling, we would basically scrub the tanks with CO two. So you're just blasting CO two through till you get your DO down. So you're forcing all of that oxygen out of the liquid and saturating it with CO two. Um, getting again, getting that DO down, and um, encapsulating the cannabinoids and terpenes and then putting them into the liquid it, it, it basically protects them from oxidative contamination 
you know, they, they have no, there's oxygen is highly reactive as we know. So they don't have an ability to, to react, oxidize um, and degrade basically. So they end up curing um, and, and turning into this wonderful product. You know, it's, it's, it's really a interesting format for curing and aging that I think is we're just the tip of the spear right now. On and, and is that because experts, I'm sorry. trying to grab everything that you're saying, but is that because yeah. it's, is, is that only, is that only happen in a beverage? Would it happen in a, would it happen? Yeah. In a yeah. Because the beverage, you know, it, it, if you put flour in a package, it, unless you nitrogen purge it, um, you know, it's exposed to, to oxygen and atmosphere. Oh, so it's oh, so yeah. you're saying it's encapsulated in yeah the, the liquid the liquid, is, yeah. is and the liquid protects it, and, and also the car the carbonation protects it as well. Yeah, because carbonation is acidic and the microbes don't like to grow. So not only are you protecting it from oxidation, you're protecting it from microbial activity as well. And is that also, is that just because it's a beverage-based product that we're talking about, or does that have to do yep. with the extraction process as well, that that encapsulated or protects it from the oxidation? Oxid it would be more, not so much extraction, more formulation, that encapsulation process. And then the, um, yeah, the being in a liquid is really the novelness of it. Nanoemulsification, encapsulation, and then being in a liquid and a carbonated liquid at that is really where the novelness lies. I believe. And then of course, once you open it, the carbonation liberates from the liquid, it brings the terpenes out. We were we were using as well. Um, one of the cool things about CO2 is, you know, we're using CO2 to extract, we're also using it to carbonate. So we would run our extraction, you know, run CO2 through the material, we would capture that gas, that CO2 gas that we use that was terpene rich, bottle that, and then go and carbonate our tanks with it. So the, the beverage is actually carbonated with terpene gas, CO2, terpene infused CO2. Um, and that, you know, when you open the bottle, you pour it out, it opens up. It's like being in the garden. It's an, an incredible sensory experience. And it never gets old when I pour that beverage for people that that enjoy cannabis. And even people that haven't, that aren't all that fond of the cannabis flavor or smell, it's um, the fresh cannabis experience. Being around a fresh cannabis plant is very different than being around a cured cannabis bag <laughs> or bud. Yeah, you know? yeah, so, yeah. so that's that's the other thing about the the terp tonic and the the live kind of cannabis beverage is um, it 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 preserves that experience of being around the fresh plant um, in in the aromatics because as soon as you open that, it's is very nicely preserved and also this nicely preserved, cured, but still very fresh. And that's very, still very novel to people as a sensory experience. And that, that you can see it in people's faces. And even people that don't like, like I was saying, the smell or taste of weed, when they smell it, like, whoa, like that smells pretty good. You know? uh, we got to bring that to the East coast. See, that's yeah. why I always love looking at the West coast too. And I'm always yeah. looking at the West coast because we're not there yet over here. And we're, you know, and yeah. I'm always looking at what's coming from that direction and see, you know, yeah. just, see where we are but um yeah. I, and i know you know we're losing I, time here but i, I, I can i say one one more oh, thing yes. Yes. um it the material matters in a huge way when you're doing right strain specific beverages um not everything tastes great 
<laughs> like there's you probably want to stay away from the cheesy gassy file rich cat pissy skunky <laughs> stuff you know if you're making a beverage that people want to enjoy and drink you know that some of those some of those flavors and and you know aromas don't necessarily translate to the beverage format so you need to be very um, intentional with your selection and that's that's where maven came in as a, just an incredible partner we were so intentional from the beginning about sourcing the right material um, and and really thinking through it, um, even down to where we are now, you know, almost two years after we bottled it. Like, is, is it going to be what we want it to be two years down the line, which in the cannabis industry is an eternity. But that intention absolutely came through when, when I opened that bottle again at, at the end. Um, and... One last thing, I mean, just being in California, the Emerald Triangle, being amongst this renowned community of growers and breeders, I mean, it was such a such a joy to be there and such an honor and a privilege to be able to work with the farmers and the breeders, cultivators. Um, I mean, that's where it, it's, it's Mecca for cannabis, in my opinion. Um, and being able to go out to the farms and, and work with, with the farmers hand in hand, again, on selection and, and being in the field, smelling, tasting. Um, it, it was just an incredible experience. And I, I, I would love to do more of that. <laughs> I, I do wow. miss it. Um, I love what I do now. Um, so I just, there's, but that, that's, it's that's, all good, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's all good. Well, I, that yeah. was my other question. Um, yeah. is, 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 are there specific strains besides like what you were just talking about? Oh, the, yeah. Yeah. Right. Are there specific strains that, uh, you know, like people have to use for hash that 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 will that will be able yeah, to. Yeah, they're washers. Yeah, yeah, the wash. You know that. Mm -hmm. So, is there a certain specific type that you would say? Yeah, just grain specific beverages. Yeah, absolutely. So, again, going back to the extraction technique that is preferred, um, I would start there because obviously, if you're going to do a solventless beverage, like we we've done that as well. Same with gummies taking it to that next level, right? Like it's solventless, full spectrum, nano emulsified, strain specific, um, yada, yada, um, as a beverage. So we've, we've done that with our, with, uh, I, I did a project with cookies on that for gummies. Um, so anyways, um, depends on the extraction. If you want to go solventless, obviously you got to choose a washer, right? One that will give you the yields and is commercially viable. If you're, if you're trying to do a scaled up commercial product, you need to be able to get good extraction yields and, and make sure that you're, you're getting the value there. Um, but if not, then, um, you know, you can do it with anything. You can do it with live resin, hydrocarbon, live resin, CO2, live resin, CO2, cured, whatever it is, whatever extract you can now emulsify. That's, that's well known. Oh, and okay. So that's what it comes yeah. down to. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But as far as cultivar selection, again, it goes back to like, if you're, you know, some, some are going to yield better than others, the sensory profiles, the consistency, you know, there's a number of things to think about. One thing that we learned with the Maven project was that they were at the time when we chose that, we weren't thinking about what's next. Um, they were actually um, ramping down peach cream gelato production because they 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 have like a seasonality to their production. They're constantly, um, you know, strain hunting. And that was that was kind of getting sunsetted. So at the time it was like, oh yeah, we're gonna sunset this. So we've got some extra material that's cool. Oh. Um, 
and let's do let's use this it, it all all the boxes were ticked at that point but then what happened was people were like oh we want more of this and we're like oh shit <laughs> oh. Production again right like go back put start plan and then you've got a, a you know three month four month cycle to get that back up and at the time we're like we wanted to maintain the momentum so we had to go find something else for the next release um and i was really excited about that um we had the french laundry which those those strains now are really this was a couple of years ago at this point but they were really getting hot those are the the, the soap soapy kind of strains that you're seeing now uh, yeah know, before it was, like, it was yeah it was like cookies um but anyways yeah so the the, the soapy soap strains are were, were hot at the time and maybe even had this french laundry which was killing it and then and in fact i think they got they got sued by the French Laundry, a, a cease and desist by Napa, the Napa restaurant, the French Laundry, I think it was called. Oh, was famous. oh, yeah. Um, so they actually ended up changing the name. Um, so they got some, they got some press out of it. But the strain itself, um, the cultivar was phenomenal. It's such a standout amongst when we did our our sensory testing and panel um, testing. It so that that's the one that we were going to do, and I, it was it was going to be a great product but we ended up um I, I ended up parting ways with lehua so that one got never got over the line um one that was i was really excited about too was the um, pink boost goddess um it's the it's the world's highest thcv rich testing mm -hmm. cultivar right now um grown by emerald spirit botanicals cleaning up the award scene um multiple emerald cups multiple um cannabis cups um golden bears i mean farmers cups you name it the pink boost goddess is is crushing it um and but it had a wonderful sensory profile and then the efficacy side of it too like a thcv um, beverage like full spectrum thcv not converted thcv or isolated thcv um like the real deals plant synthesized thcv was was really exciting to me um yeah so there's yeah. okay so we've done, yeah. we've done beers too like um abstracts hops is doing some really interesting things my my friend ross over there is doing some cool things and ian um and tj and the team um it, using okay. cannabis derived terps and hemp derived terps in in beer and beverage um on the cpg side and that's something that we've done before in the past we did collabs where we would do um i'm working directly with the brewer um on you know the the flavoring system basically that's all cannabis derived um so we give all these we, we basically build out a flavoring system um so we did lemon cushment we did a, a purple um wedding cake um did a candy land with all different microbreweries and man it is so good because <laughs> you know hemp or sorry hops and cannabis um you're starting to see on the hop side terpene talk right and and flavor wheels and flavor maps that are that are based on terpenes just like we see in cannabis so the the brewers are now starting to talk terpy um as as a method to explain kind of the flavor profiles and the aroma profiles of hops so they i mean from a flavor perspective there's the cannabis plant produces much more aroma compounds than the hops plant so we we can we can give the brewery side just a whole other palette to play around with um and it it 
that was really exciting to me because the beer has turned out. I love beer. Um, and the beers turned out so good. Um, so mi mixing the fla the the fla the turkey yeah. flavors with the with the regular yep. flavor that we know beer to taste like. Yes, and this is exactly. Infused also. No. Just turkey yeah. Infused. Yep, just terpene infused. Yeah. Oh, so adding a flavor to the beer, which is a great intro yep. to the world. Yeah. Right, as far as when they can actually. Oh yeah. THC. Wow. Yeah, I, I mean, if you if you love a good hazy IPA um you know a uh, terpene infused beer is gonna really scratch that itch it's a delicious delicious way to drink beer um that's amazing now is that uh is are they on the market or um so i did these were all like really small collabs and drops you know like uh, mm. 45 barrels so it, not oh okay I see. several thousand cans you know not not all that much um okay yeah so uh, check out abstract hops they they're doing some really cool stuff okay okay um, yeah yeah it's the it's the plate the beer hop side beverage side of abstracts oh, that yeah. sounds really cool yeah i haven't heard that that at all um okay let's see um oh my gosh we got to wind this thing because it's an hour <laughs> um yeah. but okay well i i did want to touch on and i think we've touched on it a lot because mm -hmm. you've mentioned it a lot and uh, is sensory science. I know you really mm -hmm. believe that sensory science yeah. is, is something that people should use in their R&D for beverages. Yeah. Not, oh, yeah. you know, right. I, I believe yep. that's another thing people aren't really paying mm -hmm. attention to, but we'd just like to hear your, you've mentioned it a yeah. lot in the conversation, but maybe why yeah. it's important. Yeah, to... it became, it became a big part of my role um, as chief science officer at Leho Brands, which was a you know extraction manufacturing beverage cannabis beverage company. Um, so a lot of formulation work, and um, you know I, taking from CPG, I, I had the the privilege and opportunity to sit down with you know sensory scientists, flavor makers from big alcohol and CPG brands. Um, and my mentor was a very well-respected and, and accomplished sensory flavor scientist um, on the West Coast. And so I, and, and she's still my mentor to this day, but I, I just learned so much in the techniques, the methodology, and, and really the value that it brings to, to our industry. And, you know, it's, it's so applicable and it's, it's relatively simple to learn um but it takes a lifetime to be able to really dial it in but the methods are simple you know for the most part it's about um understanding you know how to how to train your palate um it's about understanding how to design experiments um it, how to how to run experiments um without bias right and um, asking the right questions uh formulating the questions in a manner that is not biased and leading um, kind of simple concepts. But once you start to, to implement and, and utilize them, um, what you get out of it is really clean data that you can make decisions on um, instead of just like, oh, this tastes good to me. You're not making the beverage for yourself. You're making the beverage for a consumer. You're making the beverage for a company that needs to be able to commercialize it, right? And they're, they're counting on consumer acceptance. And how do you prove that, right? You can't just put your thumb in the in the wind and go, oh yeah, this is the way that it's gonna go. Um, 
um, it was nice to have the ability to do kind of fun projects like Terp Tonics and Terp Slushies and to live see. resin shots and all those things just to kind of test the market and where it's at. But really our bread and butter, honestly, was, was you know, sodas, <laughs> craft sodas. Um, they're easy. They taste good. Um, uh, they hit they hit a pretty mainstream audience. Um, you mean, but anyways, craft, craft sodas? Yeah. Mean? Oh, yeah, infused craft sodas. That's really that was our flagship product. Was a brand called Olala, and it was a craft soda brand, cannabis craft soda brand. They're they're still we're still they're still around. Uh, Lejo is still around doing it in California. And um, but anyway, to go back to sensory science, um, I'm, I'm deep in with um, ASTM now. It's uh, it, it, ASTM was formerly known as uh, American Society of Testing and um, Materials, and it's a hundred plus year old standards organization. Um, and these are, they have um, international industry standards that um, the FDA looks to, um, the USP looks to, um, ISO looks to, all of these large regulatory bodies and sta other standards bodies look to ASTM really for industry standards. Um, and they're consensus based and it's a completely volunteer organization. So. The reason I bring this up is um, there's the D18, which is a sensory science standardization committee within ASTM. Um, and I'm a part of D37, which is the cannabis standards um, committee. And it's very active. And um, we just had a committee week the other week in Kentucky. And literally, uh, the FDA is there. The DEA is there. USP is there. Um, Health Canada is there. You know, the, the the chief regulatory officer from Nevada is there, from California. You know, they're all there looking at um, at us, industry, to create standards that they can base regulations on. Um, and there's heated debate. Um, it's a science-based um, standardization kind of uh, method, if you will. Um, and, yeah, D18 is a sensory science um, committee, and um, we, we just had a... a a sensory workshop between our cannabis committee and the D18 committee. And lo and behold, there, there are standards that, um, you know, in fact, I think this is a D18 book. No, this isn't. Um, but this is, you know, like one of the, the standards books. You see how thick it is. Oh, there's, wow. <laughs> there's standards for everything that you can think of. Descriptive analysis, um, you know, uh odor threshold determination you know so there's there's standards for how to do this stuff um and it is directly applicable to what we do in cannabis there's a ton of sensory in cannabis as we know um yeah. so yeah just leveraging kind of what the standards are the methodology the known techniques and then rolling that into cannabis like that's something that i've always been drawn to and have have really used in my career and it's been it's it's been huge <laughs> right and and also because of yeah and also um to to like once you identify like you're talking about the sodas everyone loves mm -hmm. a soda so you're you're trying or you know yeah. i guess you're trying to mimic that in your oh absolutely soda that's that's the whole yeah. point of it is that kind of what what, what this yeah. is all about to get to that point yeah. Okay. Absolutely. There's yeah. There's a there's a qualitative side. There's a okay. Sweet. How sweet is it? When you say sweet, what does sweet mean? If you were to gauge it and give it a number, what is that to you? 
right? Like oh, asking okay. the qualitative questions um, ha on on the panel, right? And how big is it? How big should your panel be? Are they trained? Are they untrained? Um, you know, at what point in the process are you testing on a panel? At what point in the process are you, you know, validating against, you know, qualitative or sorry, quantitative metrics? Like, okay, if our bricks is here, you know, the, the sweetness measure of sugar and we go out for panel testing and they don't validate that, that the sugar is in the sweet spot or it's too sweet or too, or not sweet enough, then we will go back, you know, and having this all kind of mapped out, um, even informally, um, is huge. Yeah, uh, and that, that's that's really how we use use sensory science. And I had a trained panel um, that I would go to within my organization. Um, we were in in the Central Coast, and we had um, you know it's wine country. So my my lab tech was from um, Kendall Jackson. He was one of the lab techs at Kendall Jackson for a long time. So, and and a lot of our our staff. Um, in the lab came from the wine industry where sensory science is used frequently. Um, so, you know, it was, it was a great resource because I already had a semi-trained panel. I just taught them about cannabis. Um, right. And that that was my panel. Every time we had, we would have a terp blending kind of tasting, I hate to say the word party, but um, but we would have, and you can see this on my Instagram page, um, we would put out all of our terpene fractions from you know hundreds of batches of of runs, and we would run sensory on them. And and I would I would collect all of the data, um, and then we would basically bucket them. And the fruity stuff would go up here. The floral stuff would go here. The earthy stuff, herbaceous stuff, would go down here. The gassy, skunky stuff would go here. And this was before we knew you know, that the gassy stuff was thiols and VSCs and the floral compounds were monoterpenes. And, you know, the the herb, herbaceous stuff were going to be, you know, uh, longer chain terpenes, right? Like this is before we, we kind of knew this, we're using sensory science to tease out, create batches and blends so that we could produce 50 to 100,000 cartridges consistently with the same cannabis derived flavor profile. Right. Like that's how we we're able to do it and deliver a consistent experience that was cannabis derived, um, right. was was using sensory science to create these master blends that we would continually update and benchmark against standards. So does that mean that to create these master blends and these specific combinations, you have to do isol isolates, right, to and then you blend the different things. They weren't necessarily doing, they weren't isolates in like, they were just pure fractions of myrcene. They were isolates in that this was a string specific batch of terpenes. Oh, so, okay. Okay. So we had, we were oh. running, I mean, we were pulling literally. String specific batches. Okay. So yeah, it's string specific batches. Cool. Yep. Yeah. Oh, cool. Because yeah. oh, the growers will go and blend OG with ice cream cake and cheetah piss and you know whatever cookies this that and they'll they're they're doing it on their side yeah and what we'll do is we'll take it on our side run the sensory on it and then go okay this is this is predominantly this um we're going to put it into this bucket and try to create this homogenous batch of flavor basically and that's how we're able to get consistent uh, and this was for a, a distillate based line called herbology which but it was our highest volume line, you know? So, 
and with that volume and you needed that that scale and you needed consistency to be able to really deliver that that experience time and time again and with cannabis derived formulation that's a challenge because you go batch to batch to batch your extraction column is only so big you only have so many extractors your farmer goes out of business or he has a bad crop this year so you got to pull that strain from another one and they might not have it i mean there's a number of challenges right on the supply side um, so how do you maintain consistency well you create these blends you use sensory science right and that's mm -hmm. that's how we were able to do it so i had these master blends that were constantly updating but also benchmarking against a standard and that was that what we call an organoleptic blueprint so we would basically sensory blueprint out what um an indica uh indica uh cannabis derived terpene profile for us was and you know it had notes of you know fruity tropical blah 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 um and that was what the panel was trained on so they would know that okay i'm looking for you know one of the sensory techniques is is being able to um um differentiate um so you know that a floral is going to be different than a fruity profile. To a lot of people, those they might describe that the same. They're both sweet, right? But if you're a trained panelist, you would be able to distinguish between the two and differentiate. And then there's techniques like the triangle test where you can, um, it's you would be able to, you test that ability to to pick out the different one from the other. So these are all known sensory techniques, and we would use these to train the panel and then um, just bucket them in the right places, blend them back. And then every other month, depending on, you know, sell through and, and, and uh, the pull on the product, we would, we would update the blends and make sure that they're benchmarked against the standard, that they're, you know, topped off and so for that's the most part consistent. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's how you keep the consistency. But, but yeah. can you, in these master blends, if you, mm -hmm. if you didn't have the same strain to work with by doing the master blend, you can, you can uh, balance it with, to keep it yeah. the same, with the same standard. Is that what I, you yeah, know? you're, you're even the trained panelists really wouldn't be able to tell because oh. you're talking about a small fraction of it compared to the majority of it is still going to be you, when you pull it down, you don't pull down the whole thing. You maintain the majority of it we we would pull down at the most half of it before we went back and and content and topped it off okay and i got the idea from um honestly i got the idea from i mean when i looked into how jack daniels was made and then i got into winemaking and brewing um and i saw that they do a ton of blending um and it's not it's not because they, they just they do it because they did right for consistency um, and to bring out and and arguably, you know, in winemaking, the blends are really um, a, arguably a better product to a lot of people, to a lot of connoisseurs of of wine, because the the winemaker can really bring the best of everything and create something new and better than than uh, uh, you know a vintage or a single strain or or um, I can't I forget so the wine the term. Blending, it's in the blending. Is that's it's a lot of blending. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, in the for sure. that, that people are yeah. responding to. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah, because um, a, a winemaker knows the individual um, vintage, not vintages, I'm, I'm lacking the term. Ugh, 
it'll come to me. Um, grapes. Yeah, grapes. But there's a term for it. Anyways, they know they know the they know the individual grapes and and whatnot. And then they'll they'll blend to bring out the the better the best of all the different profiles. And it's you get more depth, you get more nuance, you create something that's new and from a flavor profile more stacked. You got more flavor. Um, some of these, that's why, like, um, I mean, I, I'm not a winemaker, but that's, I picked up a lot from that and being in wine country. Um, so that, that's where, that's where I got the technique from really. And then the sensory science part of it was like, oh, okay, like the sensory science is really how you, it just puts a method to the madness, right? It's. Yeah. It, it takes it to the next level. Yeah. And then focus on the consumers. Yes. You know, what what they really want really targets. Yeah, yeah that's really great. Yeah. So um, okay, so I guess we should end it because I, I I definitely want to end it and touch base now that everybody yeah. knows what an expert you yes. are in all this. I would like to just quickly talk Still about. Learning. <laughs> hey, you know, mm -hmm. the is just growing, but. Um, yeah talk about your product that you've uh your beverage product that you oh, yeah. with your wife um if you could just give us uh, an overview of that i mean now that sure. everybody knows that you really know what you're talking about <laughs> yeah um well thanks for that i like i said we're constantly learning here um yeah so high level coffee is um it's a cbd infused coffee that uh, my wife and i started um it's a the the product is i guess let me reset here. Um, CBD infused coffee, fresh roasted, shipped to you within 48 hours of um, roasting and infusion. Oh. It's our nano emulsification process. Um, and it's coffee and and CBD, full, spec C, full spectrum CBD, is, it's a wonderful product. Um, the efficacy profile of it is really interesting in that um, I've, I've done some research on it. There's some literature on um, the pharma, there's there's PK studies, one in particular that I found um, where they administer CBD and caffeine, and then they look at the offset, onset offset of caffeine. Um, and you can clearly see that um, the onset is buffered and sorry, the, the peak is buffered. So typically you would see caffeine kind of peak hard and then crash with what what this particular study demonstrated was with CBD co-administered, the caffeine peak was buffered and the crash was prolonged. So it had more of kind of a, a, a gradual efficacy curve. And anecdotally, what we feel is that um, the effects are, are um, sustained, prolonged, balanced. Um, we, we like to say it's it kind of helps with the jitters. We can't say it's jitter free, but I mean, definitely I've noticed that um, the, the jitters are are just less. It's um, sorry, I'm not I'm not a salesperson. Yeah, yeah, no, no, <laughs> uh, yeah. And also, but, if you're if you're drinking so much coffee because you're tired and you know you're just pumping that yeah. coffee in, it kind of balances yeah. out that. It's that, a yeah. Yeah. They're they're really complementary to each other. People people come up to us and are like, but they're like the opposite. One gets you up and the other gets you down. I'm like, well, actually, they're really synergistic when you put them together. 
Um, yeah. The CBD really balances all of the mal effects of caffeine, which is anxiety, which we know CBD um, has has efficacy against anxiety. Um, jitters, right? Like we know CBD can reduce involuntary muscle movements, right? Like seizure activity, um, uh, and and the crash. Um, so CBD does in that PK, that particular PK study has demonstrated ability to kind of prolong and eliminate the crash. So, um, you know, we, we came up with this product because we, we realized that not everybody wants to get high, but mm -hmm. they want to get the benefits of cannabis. And so it was like, how, how do we get it into people's routine coffee? Um, yeah. How do we make CBD more effective? Because a lot of people will tell you it doesn't work, it, caffeine, yeah. mm -hmm. um, and really flipping it. People are using CBD at night a lot of the times. I'm like, get it into your morning so that you get all of the benefits throughout the day. And oh, by the way, you also fall asleep better um, because you're not going to be over caffeinated and all the mal effects right. of CBD or, or sorry, of caffeine. So it, it's, we kind of stumbled upon it, but it's this just this golden formulation and a product is fantastic and we can ship it nationwide yeah. um, and it's fresh like that's the other thing fresh coffee is the best coffee so we we ship it to you within 48 hours of roasting and infusion um, one last thing i want to talk about is just the avd stuff that i'm working on um, so the vape science i mean um, we've got a, a, a really ground breaking um, inhalation toxicology study that's coming out um we're already in we're kind of pre-publication right now we're done with the experiments um and the and the, the trials um but basically we're testing um it's we're testing uh, inhalation um, toxicology profiles of a of a distillate a thc distillate with botanical terpenes on it and it's it's avd and abstracts um that are funding the study and uh, our, our lead researcher is uh, Dr. Willie McKinney, and he comes from um, Altria, which is like Philip Morris, Marble, um, and then he went to Jewel. So we're, he has the experience in inhalation toxicology, and he's, he's the one leading us through these trials. Um, and I'm a consulting scientist on, on that, that particular project. So my, my role there is um, working with uh, the researchers in the lab on the puff machines on the methodology for puffing uh, making sure that the vape pens work you know and our research grade and meet certain criteria for standards um, for for research and um, being that subject matter expert to um, the researchers really um, and we've contributed a significant amount of of ip resources and consult related to drive the project forward um and it's it's really exciting what we're able to find out and and learn and and share really with the industry you know like how much terpenes should you be putting in your vape pen yeah the top, yeah. <laughs> yes right yeah. um yeah and and what terpenes are going to be you know the toxicologists don't like to use the word safe but reduced risk right yeah like, and how are you assessing that risk you know like um are you using a nicotine standard to assess risk as far as use case, like where you puff on the on the cigarette for three seconds and, you know, you puff, you get 60 puffs out of a cigarette or that sort of deal, like those don't apply to cannabis, you know, and then where are you, where are you pulling your use case model from? 
So that's that's another area that we've dove in and really supported the toxicology study is uh, puff topography. So we have a study going to where um, we we have a device, a field instrument that we can take out and basically get people high on a vape pen and then um, characterize their topography. Um, so we can get a full like flow rate, um, puff volume, puff duration, um, peak peak force of like how hard you're hitting the device. And then from that, we can determine how much THC you're inhaling um, and um, get get some some averages, right? Like, oh, the average person puffs about five puffs per session. They take about a five second draw. Their um, draw strength is about this as far as a flow rate. So then when we go back to the lab and we test devices, we're using evidence-based topographies and we're not just pulling something from nicotine that really doesn't have application to how people use cannabis devices. So that's that's another way that we've supported this study. Um, and uh, what else? Uh, viscosity is another big thing for for vape pens, right? Like how the fluid dynamics of the of the oil um, is a huge driver to efficacy and and user experience and reliability for that matter. Um, so really understanding viscosity, how to characterize it, how to test for it, um, what are the drivers. So I have, a, I have a study going there, and then we're also um, proposing a standard um, for viscosity measurement via ASTM. So giving the industry a standard method, instrument, and way to test um, cannabis oil viscosity so that you know a range and you can match it to your hardware. And within that range, you know that you won't be um, creating dry hits. You won't, and those dry hits can potentially cause these what are called hazard and potentially hazardous compounds um, that the FDA regulates an e-cig, right? Like you have to demonstrate the ability of your device um, to, to um, operate within a, a certain safety window and not produce these HPHC compounds. These are things like um, they're carbonyls, they're formaldehyde, acrolein. Um, these, are, these are nasty compounds that happen when the coils get too hot, basically, and you're, you're burning your oil. <laughs> um, so all of this really plays in, um, and that that's there's one more thing I'm doing, which is like thermography. We also, I mean, there's just tons of science behind it, um, and uh, yeah, we're we've got several uh, peer reviews that are going out, um, and we're starting to present on some of the, the research that we're doing in this past year. So. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.